Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 40 of the podcast. Today, we're talking about Star Trek Discovery, season 3, episode 3, People of Earth. But first, I want to acknowledge the passing of Sir Thomas Sean Connery, or as we more commonly know him, Sean Connery. I learned just last night that he had died at the age of 90. He brought a lot of joy into my life through his acting work, and I'll always remember him as James Bond, Henry Jones Sr, and King Arthur from First Night. He remained married to his second wife, Michelin Rockabrune, right up until the end, 45 years in total, which is an achievement worthy of respect amongst famous actors. He's also survived by his son Jason Connery. But you know, Sean Connery has a Star Trek connection. While he never appeared in Star Trek, he was originally cast as Cybok, Spock's brother in Star Trek V The Final Frontier. But he was unable to do it because he was busy with Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which honestly was a much better movie in my opinion. But the mythical planet Shakari was named in Connery's honour, which I think is really nice. So I'd like to express my condolences to all of his loved ones, especially his wife and son. So back to Discovery. The description on Memory Alpha reads, Reunited with Burnham, Discovery heads to Earth to find out what has happened to the Federation in the last thousand years. This episode was written by Bo Yon Kim and Erica Lippold. It was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and it first aired on the 29th of October 2020. Make it so. The episode opens with a quick recap of what Michael has been up to during the last year, while she's been searching for Discovery, indirectly waiting for them to show up. It's a shame we didn't really get to see any of her adventures with Book, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of tie-in media that will be more than happy to fill the gap. She worked as a courier, travelling from world to world, making deliveries for a tiny handful of dilithium. But the interesting thing is, it does this in the form of a log entry aimed at Discovery. The voiceover makes it clear that even before the burn, dilithium was becoming rare. And we get to see a glimpse of some 32nd century Starfleet ships. They don't look all that different to those we've seen from other centuries. We don't see any of them up close, but the basic shape is present in both of them. Saucer section, secondary hull, warp nacelles. Burnham didn't give up everything for this version of the future, and she's determined to set things back to how they should be. She's also searching for answers on what caused the burn. And we see her hair change over time, visually confirming the passage of time. She seems to have built a very meaningful relationship with Book, although it seems it's not romantic as such. And while I think they'd make a great couple, I'm cool with that. I like their friendship, the way it is portrayed in this episode although it does feel like there is some romantic tension between them. But what would a log entry be without a star date? In the first two seasons, they just kind of made up random star dates. None of it made any sense, because to be a true pre-TOS star date, they'd have to be three-digit numbers. The star date Michael quotes in this episode 
is 865211.3. This is a six-digit star date. Those in the 24th century, starting with TNG, were five digits. Now, I haven't done the maths, but I imagine this star date is correct. I think they've calculated it from the TNG system onwards the right number of years. I mean, it looks about right. So that's pretty cool. And then we cut to Michael's arrival on Discovery in the transporter room, and we get a very emotional reunion between her and all of her family. It was wonderful to see. Once again, Sonequa Martin-Green's facial acting really gets across so much emotion. Anyway, I loved this. It was very well done, and it certainly made me feel. And there's this look between Burnham and Giorgio, who stands at the back of the room. Unlike the others who crowd around Burnham for hugs, that's not Giorgio style, especially not the mirror Giorgio. But there's a little moment there between them. Hard as it might be to believe, coming from the former Terran Emperor, Giorgio genuinely feels something for Michael. She's the closest thing she'll ever get to a daughter, and this one is unlikely to betray her the way the mirror Burnham did. Burnham and Saru have a nice scene catching up as they walk through the ship. Burnham has promised Book some dilithium for helping to rescue the Discovery. Saru is more than happy to honour the promise. Nobody knows whether the burn was a natural disaster or a deliberate attack, and that's kind of worrying. Neither option is especially appealing. Either way, millions died. During her year, Burnham received a transmission from an Admiral Senatal. He is waiting on Earth for anyone who still believes to join him. Burnham was never able to follow up on this lead, because with Dilithium so rare, Earth was always out of reach. Now, she has access to a spore drive. She can go there. Nobody on Discovery is going to argue with that. They all want to find out what became of the Federation. Michael suggests they jump outside of Earth's scanning range and pose as a starship from this century that was stranded by the burn. Again, it's not clear to me why they can't just be honest with Starfleet about being from the past. Why the deception? It seems unnecessary, especially if they want to earn the trust of present-day Starfleet. But Giorgio approves of this plan, and I can understand why she would like it. Don't give away more than you need to. That's consistent with who she is. Stamets is waiting for the order to prep for the jump, but he's unsure whose orders he should be following, Saru's or Michael's. And Saru says, oh yes, we are due for a conversation. He wants to discuss with her who is going to be the next captain of the Discovery. This is a weird holdover from last season. Saru told Pike not to worry about who will be captain, they'd work that out later. But it seems silly to me that there would even be a question. Saru was first officer, he's next in line. Obviously he will be serving as Discovery's captain. It's not only logical, it's well earned, we saw that last week. Saru has grown a lot in the last two seasons. He's gone from the timid first officer, questioning every decision and asking the computer for leadership advice, to the man who took charge last week. Michael agrees, there's no need for that conversation Saru, it's you. She agrees the chain of command dictates it, and that Saru has proven himself. It seems that she and I are on exactly the same page. Saru is captain in the truest sense of the word. But for Michael, there's more to it. 
she's changed over the last year. She's had to. She'll say later in the episode that she had to leave some things behind in order to survive in this new hostile world. I suspect she's talking about more than just Starfleet protocol and military discipline. I think she's had to compromise on some principles. Probably not any big ones, but some smaller ones. It'll be interesting to learn more about this over time, as I'm sure we will. Anyway, it was a nice scene. I'm very happy with how that turned out. Saru says this ship bears the name Discovery, and never has that been more fitting or more prescient. I agree with him, and I'm excited by the possibility that the ship will truly get to live up to her name this season. Well, we certainly got some of that last season, but I think we'll get even more this time. And all of that was just the teaser. But we've come to expect long teasers in modern Star Trek. Deep Space Nine did the same thing. Discovery is undergoing repairs. We see a bunch of those repair droids from the opening credits. And they've got a little memorial for those who died in the crash, and probably also in the battle with Control. The insignia badges are all on display, in memory of those who wore them. I find it particularly confronting that some of those badges are cadet badges. Just kids. Things have been so hectic, nobody has had time to grieve. And not just those who have died, but those who were left behind. I like that even though there was that big communal hugging scene earlier, that Michael gets individual catch-up scenes with those that are closest to her, that being Tilly and Saru. Tilly is coming to terms that her mum is gone, dead, for centuries. She never had a very good relationship with her, but it was her mum. I often wonder how Tilly's mum reacted when she got that message from Tilly, saying she was going to the future. I wonder how it made her feel. I wonder if she realised her shortcomings as a mother in that moment, the way she had failed Tilly. I wonder how that affected her, and if she ever truly recovered from the grief of that realisation and knowing that she'd never have a chance to make it right. Or did she remain stone-hearted and just accuse Tilly of being needy and selfish? We'll probably never know. Tilly is hoping that there'll be something on Earth that they'll recognise after all this time. I love Michael's line back to her that cake is eternal. That would make a good t-shirt, but perhaps a little too obscure for any people to get. Tilly points out that Michael seems lighter, and she's not wrong. And I'm surprised to find myself saying that I'm liking this lighter Burnham. I don't mean lighter in the Marvel sense of the word, that she's all jokes now. No, it seems like a great weight has been lifted from Michael's shoulders, and I like that. She's had to let go of a lot of baggage in this new world. It's been like a fresh start for her, the ultimate sea change. You know, I was invited by a friend to appear on his podcast recently, the Christian Geek Central podcast. We talked about the current state of Star Trek, and in that discussion, my friend Peter said he wished Michael's return to grace hadn't happened so abruptly at the end of season one. Can you imagine how much more powerful this moment would be for the character if she hadn't been forgiven of her crime of mutiny and been given back her commission? If she had remained a technical prisoner, serving her time on Discovery rather than in jail for the rest of season two, but now found herself 
in a whole new world where she could truly have a fresh start, a second chance. That could have been amazing. But it's still really cool. Michael was a pretty uptight person during those first two seasons. Now she's something different. And that's some interesting character development. And it wouldn't be as cool if we hadn't had the uptight Burnham beforehand. For some reason, Giorgio is the one who beams Book aboard. Oh, I get why she's doing it. She wants to check him out, see who this guy that her daughter has been gallivanting around with is. But surely somebody else was meant to be on duty in the transporter room. Book was expecting Detma or Tilly, which is weird because neither of them work in the transporter room. Anyway, Discovery has a huge supply of dilithium, by today's standards. They cut off a little piece for Book. This is going to make them a target. They can't let it become too well known that they're so stocked. Michael wants Book to come to Earth with her. It could be a fresh start for him, and he's interested, at least for a temporary expedition. He asks Michael what she gets out of it, and she goes all awkward and coy. She can't just say, you're my friend and I'd miss you if we weren't together. I kind of wish she had. But instead she says that he can help them mask the dilithium, which is quite true. His ship has a cloaking device. Book has never been to Earth, but in a sense, neither has Michael, not this Earth. We should talk about Book's ship. I like the interior, that's really cool. But the exterior, well, that's a bit weird. There are elements that I like about it, but the asymmetry of it really bothers me. I guess I just like things to be symmetrical. It's a very odd shape. Saru is now wearing his captain's uniform, and it looks good on him. He was shocked that Michael never considered trying to take the captaincy herself. Which, as I've explained, is weird to me. I don't see why anyone would think she had a claim on it. Yes, she and Saru both hold the rank of commander, but he was higher in the chain of command. Anyway, dead horse, sorry. The point of this scene is that Michael has changed. Saru can see it, and Michael doesn't deny it. I'm the same person, and I'm not. She had to adapt to this world. She did what she had to, to learn as much as she could. Saru finds it hard to trust Book. He doesn't know Book like Michael does. But, for Michael's sake, he accepts the idea with some logical security concerns. Booker joins them on the bridge, and they jump into the Sol system, just past Saturn. As Discovery approaches Earth, a giant force field envelops the entire planet. That makes sense. First of all, because we are in the far future, and such technology should reasonably exist. But secondly, because this is a harsher, more dangerous time. The people of Earth want to protect it. They probably still have a relative paradise down there. We'll soon see that this is effectively the case. Two ships arrive. United Earth Defence Force. Apparently, ships are not welcome in the vicinity of Earth. Not any ships. Not even one bearing a Starfleet registry. We meet Endoye, a captain of the UE Defence Force. Endoye can find no mention of the discovery in her records because of the classified nature of the ship. Saru tried to sell her on the story that they are a long-range ship returning from a very long classified scientific mission. They are the descendants of the original crew. 
Personally, I think that would be harder to swallow than time travel, but anyway. And Doye can pinpoint discovery to only the range of 23rd to 25th century, based on the materials used in the hull. And Doye's security force beam aboard immediately, a bunch of people on all decks. Again, believable. Book has to pose as a Starfleet officer so as not to attract attention. He hates wearing it, but Michael gets a kick out of it. Book compares wearing the uniform to a time when he saved Michael from a bog filled with leeches. This conversation is very reminiscent of one between Anakin and Obi-Wan in Star Wars Episode 2, but it gives the sense of a long history of shared adventures between these two. The scenes actually served the exact same purpose in both stories. This is yet another example of the Star Warsy feel to this new setting. It should feel out of place. It maybe should even bother me. But you know, despite the Star Wars-esque dystopian setting, this season feels very, very Star Trek. And that's because of Discovery itself. Imagine the Enterprise got pulled into the Star Wars universe and continued to carry on its mission there. Imagine there was a show about that. The show would have a Star Wars setting, but it would still very much be a Star Trek show. That's kind of how this feels. The crew of Discovery make this feel like Star Trek, even though the setting doesn't. Giorgio also needs to wear a uniform, and she picks an Admiral's uniform. This is typical of her character and mildly amusing, but it is good to see a Discovery Admiral's uniform again. I always liked their Admiral uniform. Giorgio makes some interesting observations, that Michael isn't sure she fits in here anymore. She's gotten used to not having to follow orders and be in a chain of command. Earth has rebuilt to be self-sufficient, so it's still very much the Star Trek Earth down there. Beautiful gardens, a world without poverty. But it's under constant threat. People want what they have. They want the Dilithium. And it's made the people of Earth paranoid and suspicious. Understandably so, perhaps. Right now, their greatest threat is a group of Dilithium Raiders led by a bloke named Wen. And Doye tells them that they won't find what they're looking for on Earth. Starfleet and the Federation haven't been on Earth for a long time. Having Federation headquarters on Earth would make it a target. Earth is no longer part of the Federation. And that's huge! She says that Admiral Tal left Earth years ago, but died on his ship. And that kinda sucks. Adira gives the impression that she is in charge of those inspecting the spore lab, and that she is really hard and grumpy. She's only 16 years old, not much older than my daughter. We'll find there is more to her than is apparent a little later. But Wen's raiders have arrived, and something is interfering with the personal transporters used by the Earth defence people. Ndoye claims this is a sabotage by the Discovery crew, something Saru immediately denies. So this is awkward. Seems like they're all stuck with each other. Book's disappointment when he realises that the Discovery only has Synthahole is amusing. But this is actually a canon violation. Synthahole was a 24th century invention. Scotty, in his retirement years, had never heard of it until he found himself in the future on board the Enterprise D. Discovery should not have synthahole, and Michael should have no idea what it is. 
Stamets and Tilly quickly realise that the sabotage was Adira's doing. She has trapped her people on the Discovery, but it seems she was working alone. The show seems to be setting her up as a villain, perhaps working with Wen. Michael has a plan. She and Book leave Discovery in Book's ship without asking Saru's permission. Book observes that these raiders are not in good shape. We get more talk of past adventures, and more and more I'm wanting to experience some of those stories. Michael appears to be offering to give them some dilithium. Saru is determined to protect Book's ship, and Doye won't allow the dilithium to fall into Wen's hands. So he says Discovery will take the hit. This is a very risky move. These are 32nd century weapons being fired. By all logic, they could slice through a 23rd century ship like it wasn't even there. Detmer is very hesitant, to the point of almost being insubordinate, but she eventually obeys. I'm sure this is tied into her weird head condition thing from last week. A lot of people are speculating that Detmer has PTSD, rather than a physical ailment. And the evidence seems to be pointing towards this. This is interesting, because I feel like we were cheated out of the promised exploration of PTSD with Tyler when he turned out to be Vok. Anyway, I'm kind of with Detmer on this. Taking the hit from those advanced weapons is a terrible idea. In reality, Discovery should have been destroyed. But then there'd be no show anymore. Their shields are completely depleted by the shot, but the ship itself is undamaged. Yeah, right, as if. But they can't take another hit. The plan is simple. Get the enemy to lower their shields to accept the dilithium, and then beam their captain aboard as a prisoner. It works easier than it probably should have, but that's okay. This is where we start to understand how Earth's isolation has affected others in the galaxy. Wen says that Earth hoards all the dilithium while the rest suffer. They don't even use their supply, because they don't leave their planet. Giorgio is getting bored with the slowness of diplomacy, so she pulls off what is apparently a mask, and we see that Wen is human. Not only that, he was played by Christopher Heyerdahl. He played Todd the Wraith on Stargate Atlantis, not to mention two separate roles in Sanctuary. He's a type of actor that regularly plays multiple roles on the same show, both in and out of prosthetics. Anyway, it's cool to see him. Indoye is shocked to learn that Wen is human. This is classic Star Trek. Look past the monster to see the humanity inside. Talk to your enemies. Wen and his people are not typical raiders. Their home on Titan, one of the moons of Saturn, are barely livable. They're just a group of desperate people trying to survive. Titan is no longer self-sufficient. It was an accident that destroyed much of their colony. The first ship they sent for help to Earth, their home planet, was shot and destroyed. Wen's people realised then they were alone. Earth has had to protect themselves, but they've become so paranoid that they've lost all their compassion for others. They've forgotten what it means to be human, in the Star Trek sense of the word. The negotiations are not difficult once they start listening to each other, but it took Saru and Michael to make it happen. These people aren't used to solving their problems with diplomacy. Stamets finds Adira messing about in the Jeffreys tubes. He puts together that she is curious about their technology, 
but may not be a significant threat. He tells the truth about everything, the spore drive, even them being from the past. Adira became an inspector in the hopes of someday finding a Federation starship. The sabotage was to have more time to spend on Discovery. She wants to join the crew. It seems Adira is one of those true believers Book talked about, and she claims to know Admiral Senna Tal. The crew of Discovery have now been granted permission to visit Earth. Endoye gives Adira permission to leave Earth and join the crew of Discovery. Adira says that she is Admiral Tal. At first, I thought this just meant that Admiral Tal was a fabrication by a teenager who dreamed of Starfleet. But no, it's way more than that. It turns out that although human, Adira is host to a Trill symbiont. Burnham didn't know about the Trill until she met some working at the exchanges, and Saru gets all his information from the sphere data. Yes, we've still got that. They were known in the 23rd century. Emini Dax travelled to Earth to judge a gymnastics contest, where she met a young Leonard McCoy. But they were possibly not all that well-known or understood species to the Federation at the time. So, how does this all work? Can a human be host to a true symbiont? Well, there is precedent for that. When we first met them in The Next Generation, Riker once served as a host to a symbiont. Very little had been established about the species at that time. But Adira is having trouble accessing Tal's memories, being human. I like this. It shows that it is possible, but problematic. Of course, Riker didn't seem to have any problems with his symbiont, but there was a lot that wasn't properly established in that episode. In fact, a lot about the Trill changed when they were brought back for Deep Space Nine, including their appearance. This was all because Terry Farrell was an attractive woman, and they didn't want to cover her face with prosthetics and lose her beauty. So they said, we'll just give them spots then. This should bother the heck out of me. The reason it doesn't is that I never saw that TNG episode until years later. I actually thought that Emissary was the first appearance of the Trill for a long time. So from my perspective, DS9 was correct and that TNG episode was wrong. Best forgotten. Saru mentions that Trill hosts can access the memories of their former hosts. What he doesn't mention is that the symbiont also has a personality of its own and that personality blends with the host, as well as the memories from the former hosts, to create a new individual. I can understand them simplifying things for the sake of this conversation. I just hope the writers fully appreciate how this species works. While Saru and Michael are talking, Saru is taking out Captain Giorgio's old telescope. They don't mention it at all, it's just there. Kind of weird. I mean, it was a nice callback, but it seems to have been a bit of a pointless inclusion. Michael admits she should have told Saru her plan. She's been out of Starfleet for a year. She's not used to working in a team like this. Michael let go of a lot of things during this year, and it's going to take her time to pick them back up again, if she can. But Saru trusts her to grow through this change. Michael accepts the post as first officer of the Discovery. Notice that Saru is kind of our very first alien captain. I know there have been alien captains in Star Trek before, but not regular characters, not on the title ship of the show. So that's significant. 
Michael has an emotional goodbye with Book. It seems he's not staying indefinitely. He's going back on his ship to live out his normal life. But I'm sure this is not the last we've seen of him. We end with a heartwarming scene of several crew members down on Earth. They find a tree at Starfleet Academy. A tree that still exists from their century. It's got to be over a thousand years old. This is the recognisable thing that Tilly was hoping for. It's a nice little moment. Our final shot is a nice pullback over San Francisco as the Star Trek fanfare plays. This season definitely feels the most Star Trek of anything we've been given in the Kurtzman era of Star Trek so far. That's not a knock against Discovery Seasons 1 and 2 or Picard. I liked all of them. But this feels more Star Trek-y. Personally, I don't mind the way they mixed things up previously. I can appreciate both. But I think a lot of people will be saying, finally, this is proper Star Trek. Anyway, I continue to enjoy what is feeling like a strong season. Next week's episode is called Forget Me Not. Discovery will continue their search for Starfleet Headquarters by trying to access Tal's memories. And yes, I'm assuming Tal is the name of the symbiont, which would make the current host Adira Tal. The good thing about being in the far future is that we get to have some references to 24th century Trek. And I'm very pleased to notice that a lot of it is DS9 stuff. That's good, because I've been wanting some more love to be given to DS9. All I need now is the appearance of a beloved character, like we've had from TOS, TNG and Voyager. I actually think there's a good chance that will happen next week, in a roundabout way. I think there's a good chance that we will see Dax this season. Not Jazia Dax or Ezri Dax, but some future host. It's possible. We'll just have to wait and see. Anyway, have a great week. Live long and prosper. Make it so.